Marcus Ginello and a very warm welcome to episode two of the Best with Capital podcast, where we find the smartest investors, entrepreneurs, fund managers, traders, whatever, and interrogate them on what made them successful so you can shortcut your learning curve to becoming better at managing money and growing your wealth. Today, we're in the thick of it. This is part two of a three-part series we're doing with Chris McIntosh, someone I was very lucky to speak to about all sorts of things, ranging from examples Chris shares on trades he's done to some of the bigger and more nebulous issues like what the hell is going on with central bank policy and putting the headlines aside, what does it mean for you and me and the future? These days, Chris would be best described as a macro investor, but he's done it all, working for uh, some of the biggest investment banks, to starting and running multiple businesses, to building a property portfolio, to becoming an angel investor and then venture capitalist. He really is an all-round investor in the true sense of the word. Chris specializes in profiting from opportunities that he sees have a ton of upside potential with minimum risk, something he has done consistently and across asset classes and markets. And that's why we lured him onto our show. In part one of our chat, which by the way, you can hear in our blog or search for Vespa Capital on iTunes or in Google Play, Chris spoke about his formative years and the journey that has led him to where he is now. This is part two, which is a little different. And in this episode, we speak about a ton of stuff, such as the way Chris identifies opportunities in the markets and assesses risk, how psychology interferes with common sense and fundamentals, how Chris learned to spot opportunities as a kid growing up in South Africa, and how those same opportunities are spreading now throughout the developed world, why he is seeing sentiment traders and analysts starting to look at the market differently and why they are moving towards longer-term investments. We also speak about counterparty risk and what you can do to minimize it as much as possible. And Chris also walks us through a trade he made and breaks down his thinking. I mean, there's so much more crammed in here that instead of talking about it, let's just cut to the chase. So ladies and jelly spoons, I present Chris McIntosh, part two. To kick us off, I ask Chris to give us an example of what an asymmetric opportunity looks like. So, you know, um, I'll give you a quick example today. If you go to short the bond market via, say, Eurobull puts, mm-hmm. you can go out in Europe, which is the best derivative market, the best option market in the world, and you can go out four and a half years shorting the bond market, going long interest rates. And at the moment, the market's pricing the potential for a move at about 50 basis points, nearly five years out. That's a long time frame for a fixed <laughs> basis point move. Okay? That is, yeah. <laughs> and if you look at it from a historical perspective, that has never, ever happened before. We've never, <clears throat> ever had that low a cost of entry. Does it mean that it doesn't get lower? No, it doesn't. It's possible that we go to 40 basis points. 20 basis points. I don't know. What I do know is that if I can take a portion of my portfolio and risk it with such a low entry point, I can keep rolling 50 basis points for years and years. It's, it, yeah. costs, it costs me nothing. It's like, it, it, it's, it's almost like if you were to take an insurance policy and say, you know what, I don't want my house to burn down and I'll pay few thousand dollars a year for, for, the, for the privilege to know that if it does burn down, I will be able to rebuild another house. Everybody understands that, right? And if you think about it like that and you said, you know, 
I don't think there's an argument that the bond market won't blow up at some point in time. That seems, yeah, it's it's that I talk to goes, yeah, yeah. but nobody wants to take the trade. Nobody is prepared to take the trade. Oh, it's, it's, it's the scariest thing ever, right? Yeah. Because, you know, all these people, all these people are not used to this and, and everything that they've learned tells them that it's, it's not right. So you're not comfortable with linear thinking, right? So if something has gone up by 2% a year uh, and, you, and, and that happens, say, for two years, you go, mm, okay, what's the odds of it going up for 2% by 2% in year three? And you go, well, uh, maybe it's sort of, you know, 50-50 goes up in year three by 2% and it keeps doing that. And if you get to year 10 and it's been going for 2% for 10 years running, you, the, the human brain says, you know what? I think that the probability is far higher that it's going to drop by 2% year 11. Contrary is actually true, depending on the, on the underlying fundamentals. If the underlying fundamentals are, are collapsing underneath that structure, then your risk is far higher. However, perception is that it's going to keep going up. Yeah, it's down to confirmation bias, right? So, yeah, yeah. No, so that's that's basically where I'm looking at a whole lot of asset classes and sectors that globally have asymmetry built into them for whatever reason. And then the other aspect I'm looking at are, are major structural trends, trend changes. Demographics mm-hmm. is a huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I talk a lot about political and socioeconomic changes and how those knock on and flow through societies. I was fortunate enough to have grown up in South Africa where I experienced what was a very stable, um, safe environment, at least for, um, at least for white, white people, and this isn't meant to sound racist, but when the transition took place, you had this, this massive increase in crime, um, which was understandable. But I watched how incredibly wealthy people in the security sector got because of the, the, the consumption changes due to a, an economic environment that was different. In the world that I'm looking at now, that's a huge trend as well. Um, certainly in Europe, it's even in the US. Um, and so, you know, big, big structural shifts like that. Demographics is a very, very big one. Um, so there's, there's sectors that I'm interested in in that space, um, both for private investments as well as, you know, liquid stuff. You know, this whole idea of asymmetric, you know, identifying asymmetric opportunities is something that I think is, is really interesting, especially now. Can you describe the, the process you go through, you know, to identify these opportunities? Mm-hmm. My, my core focus is, tends to be global macro. I look at the global macro landscape and then I go from there. I have a strong bias, increasingly so as I've gotten older, towards how intergenerational wealth is held. So not necessarily created, but how it's held. Okay. Um, and that's quite different because it's, it's preservation of capital. A lot of that I basically outsource. I'm not a guy sitting there trying to understand trying to spend hours and hours researching companies for deep value investment. Uh, mm-hmm. I have friends that do that and they do it far better than I will ever do it. Um, and so I'm more than happy to allocate capital um, to them to let them manage that side of things. 
the asymmetric side of things is what interests me, in large part due to really the current macro environment that we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that we've never experienced in a lifetime. And I kind of feel a little bit like I've been honing my skills through my life for this environment. So it comes from multiple aspects in, into how I identify those opportunities. And so I'll give you an example. Um, and I wrote about this some time back. Um, I manage a fund with my with a, a buddy of mine, Brad Fadden, the Asymmetric Opportunity Fund. And Brad is a trader. He will look at, um, at the charts and he will look at ratios and things like that. Um, so to give an example, this was back, um, what it would have been, mid to late 2014, and Brad sent me over some charts and said, hey, you know, Chris, take a look at this. And it was the dollar index. And he was looking at volatility on the dollar index. And it was the lowest that had been in like some hundred years or something ridiculous. And he said, you know, this, this is extremely low volatility. Why is this? Right? Because his mindset, he looks at it and goes, that's, that's something I should probably buy. Okay, and I'm not prepared to do that. I, I feel like I need to understand a little bit more before I just, you know, that's just got low volatility. So, um, so we looked at that, and then, um, and then I had a number of conversations with friends and money managers and so on and so forth in the industry, and I became educated around the carry trade and how um, this enormous amount of capital had moved from in the resource boom. Okay, so everybody, you remember talking about the bricks, right? There was, the bricks was the resource boom. Now, what happened was capital was going into copper, gold, coal, oil, you name it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those commodities were in commodity countries, the bricks, okay? So then the currencies of those countries were bid up as a result. The yield differential, it was possible to borrow US dollars and invest in Brazilian real denominated assets or Remnumbi denominated assets or mm-hmm. Australian, South African, you name it. And, and I, I, there's a buddy of mine in Hong Kong who, um, who quite literally made an immense fortune doing this where they would borrow dollars and they would invest it into Remnumbi based assets at sort of 8% yields. They were borrowing at, um, his cost of capital was around about four. So he was, he was on the up on that. But what happened each year was that the renminbi went up 5% vis-a-vis the dollar. Okay. So when you do that on leverage, Lucas, you uh, make, yeah, I, can, I was just about you, to say, yeah, you, know, you make 4%, you make 4% on your, um, on the actual, on the actual underlying investment. instrument. Yeah. And yeah. then you make another 5% on the currency. And if you're unhedged, and, and increasingly, guys would, would not hedge the position because they were convinced that the remnant would keep going up. Again, it was, you know, come back to what I said before. Something goes up 2% in year one, 2% year two. Yeah. You yeah. get to year 10 and you're like, oh, this is my brand. It's going to go up by 2%. And so yeah. what happens is people put more and more capital at risk. So they increase leverage, increase risk as the fundamentals are falling apart. That was the... That was the, carry, the, the, the underlying fundamentals behind what is now the world's largest carry trade. And Raul Powell talks about this a lot. Yeah. A couple of weeks back. But 
you have um, you, you had all of this capital that was going into these other assets, uh, foreign um, currency assets, and the dollar just did nothing but go down for about ten years. So the expectation that the dollar would go up was so extremely low. Right at this point in time, when Brad showed me this, the volatility on it, and, and and the market was literally saying there is no chance that the dollar will go up, and so we just and that's an exa- it was exhaustion, and so we didn't do anything. We just sat and watched, and then it broke. It broke a seven-year trend, just bumped up, and we were like, "This is it. This is a no-brainer." It, our cost of entry on this thing is just—it's—it's it's so cheap, historically cheap. I understood now the um, the macro environment of this carry trade. Yep. And I understood that the slightest move, not in not in interest rates, but the slightest move in the foreign exchange side of things, mm. was gonna. Um, had the real potential to hurt a lot of players who were basically short dollars, long pick your currency, mm. and we and they were unhedged. They were unhedged because this trade had worked for so damn long that they felt the risk was low, so they took risk off. They they, they went risk on as opposed to risk off. So that broke the seven year trend, and we we layered into that. Um, in a big fashion, and then it broke the 30-year trend a few months later, and you know you just pull up a dollar index chart now <laughs> where that all went. Um, yeah. It's been bumping and grinding around for the last 12 months, and I still think that yeah. the, the odds are it breaks higher. We'll see. But that to answer your question, how do you look for markets? Um, there's a number of different factors that come into it. I just had a really interesting chat with a buddy of mine I used to work with years and years ago. He was out of Luxembourg, and he was a sentiment trader. Um, he was one of the best I've ever, ever seen, and he's since uh, probably 10 years ago, he retired to just manage his own, managing his own um, family office. And he said an interesting thing to me. He said, you know, Chris, I'm not really looking at the types of things that I have historically looked at. Um, moving averages and all these other metrics that sentiment traders typically look at. And I said, why? And he said, well, they're not really working as well as they typically have. And, and there's breakdown in, um, in pricing mechanisms. And I said, well, what is it that you're looking at? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at these trends in the, basically in the political system, um, that are that are shifting and those trends themselves he feels are going to move they're going to move first and then you're going to have capital follow and so he basically his time frame on on trading is shifted quite dramatically he used to be quite short-term focused and he's making it longer term and he's taking a bit of risk off the table leverage off the table but he's making big bets um on a longer dated outcome, uh, which is very interesting because it actually ties in with a lot of the things that I've been talking about in the blog. Um, so it's, it's always yeah, exciting to me to find a lot of really smart people who've got different ways of making money. And sometimes that culminates in me coming to the same conclusion as they do. And, and normally when that's happened, uh, it's a very good confirmation that I'm on the right track. Uh, so 
I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's typically how I go about looking at opportunities and trying to assess risk. Before we were talking, you were talking a bit about, um, you know, debt. And um, one of the things that um, I think is going to be more prominent as we, as we move forward is the whole idea of, of counterparty risk. What are your thoughts on counterparty risk, you know, both currently and in the future? And does that risk vary depending on, you know, where you choose to put your capital? Is it something that you've given thought to? So, so counterparty risk, just, just to sort of define it, counterparty risk is always dependent on asset class and jurisdiction. Okay, so for example, a counterparty risk on a mining asset in, say, Indonesia mm. means that you're, you have political risk in terms of the jurisdiction and then you have legal risk in terms of the contracts that you um, have on that asset and you bought let's say it's a private equity deal, right? Those, you can actually mitigate those, um, their counterparty risk by structuring the deal in that um, you could, for example, secure offshore assets because your risk is that, you know, the, the, your counterparty within Indonesia can just take your assets away. Happens yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. Now you can secure assets that they may have offshore and you've de-risked that whole deal quite substantially. If you're talking, and then if you go into, say, banks and, and liquid um, asset classes, whether it be equities, derivatives, futures contracts, um, ETFs, in that space, the, um, you, you, you basically have um, counterparty risk that has been structured across jurisdictions. It's not so easily identifiable. So again, mm. you the Indonesian thing, you go, okay, I'm buying a mine, a copper mine in Indonesia. Great, wonderful. Who are the players? Pretty easy. Do your due diligence, you know who you're working with. What's the political risk? You can ascertain what the political risk is. What's the currency risk? Like, it's very easy to understand what your risk is. And as such, you can actually come up with a lot of solutions. You can um, hedge your currency risk. You can um, deal st structure the particular deal in such a fashion that you massively, massively decrease those risks. Um, so, and then on the contrary, when you're going into something like, say, an ETF, um, you don't know who your counterparty is, and you won't know. Even the the, the guys who dig into this stuff don't fully understand always and they will tell you who the ultimate um, end counterparties are to these assets right mm -hmm. so if it's an etf holding a number of um, i don't know gld right it's talking about gold because you'll be buying gold presumably to secure the downside risk of a currency implosion of a debt collapse of um, political turmoil socioeconomic upheaval, things like that. So you go, oh, okay, I'll buy gold. And you go and you buy yourself an ETF like GLD. Well, who are your counterparties? And it's not that easy to understand um, because every counterparty has got multiple other counterparties. And a lot of the stuff is off balance sheet. So, you know, back when I cut my teeth in investment banking, mm. I was actually um, on a desk where we were, we were doing, um, taking balance sheet items on the bank 
across emerging markets and restructuring them for tax purposes. And a lot of this stuff was all off balance sheet. Okay. And we could, we, we, we would literally sit with the lawyers for hours on end, um, making sure that we could get around the various jurisdictional legislature, whether it was Argentina, um, Brazil, Tokyo, whatever it happened to be. And we had a, you know, tons of lawyers, um, all with experience in those spaces, which I imagine would have cost the bank millions and millions of dollars a year. <laughs> but the point that we were dealing with billions, so it, it all was yeah. economic. But the point is that an outsider that's buying any of the assets that we as JP Morgan were selling had no idea that any of that was taking place. And they won't. Right. And today, I don't know what's taking place there. I just know that stuff is happening, okay? So, um, and that was, shucks, that was nearly 20 years ago. So what does it look like today? Is it worse, better? Um, I don't really want to know. But to answer your question, you want to be de-risking as much as you can in this environment, um, if you're holding assets that are publicly traded, I mean, I've seen this before. People saying, oh, you don't want to own stuff in the stock market. It's all rigged. And I'm like, well, no, if you actually understand how assets are and how they're, um, you know, a listed asset doesn't, just because it's listed, doesn't actually mean that it's manipulated. Um, I mean, I know that that buys headlines, but that's just garbage. You can yeah. have a company, you and I can own a f- fundamentally sound business and we can list that business. Now, if you want to de-risk um, owning that asset, well, then you just own the shares. You own the physical, you ask for the stock certificate. So if your broker or your custodian lands up being a monkey and has pledged those securities to somebody else, which you know isn't meant to take place, but as we saw with MF Global... Yeah, I was, was going to bring that up. You can, it's actually easy to de-risk that. You just simply get issued the stock cert and you put it in your safe, in your house, in your cupboard or whatever you want to put it, okay? <laughs> sure, it makes it a little bit more difficult because if you want to buy and sell it, then it's a little bit more tough. But that's where you make a distinction between your risk allocation in your portfolio. So if, for example, you've got, say, 80% of your assets are in equities and bonds, corporate bonds and maybe equities, and you're worried about counterparty risk, for goodness sake, if you're not planning on buying and selling them, you're not trading them on a you know weekly, monthly basis, you're holding them because you feel they're strong, good um, assets to own, then just get issued the bloody certs and, and don't take that risk. The same is true of holding, say, gold, if you're buying gold with the intention of using it as a, um, as a risk reduction asset, then don't buy the ETF. I don't, you know, uh, who, who knows whether the custodian is going to stand tall and strong? I don't. Um, and quite frankly, nobody is going to be able to tell you conclusively that that is going to be safe. Um, we know that the banks are levered. We know that um, there's shenanigans that go on. So fine, just de-risk it. Um, don't need to make it more complicated than, than it is. Mm. And then on the cash front, um, put your money into banks that 
um, appear relatively more safe. I mean, I got this question the other day from a, um, an ex-client of mine as to, you know, I wrote an article about the banks in Australia and um, the, uh, the risks that are clearly prevalent there. And, and he said, oh, you know, where should, I, where should I put my money in what banks? Um, and he's talking about a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I said to him, well, what is, the, what is your outcome that you want? And he just wants safety. I said, okay, if you get safety that you want, um, then it's pretty easy to get safety. You go to Singapore, you open a safe deposit box, you take a bunch of cash and you stick it in the safe deposit box, <laughs> right? Because if you put your money in the bank, you're actually getting charged on it nowadays. Um, the, 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 the return that you're getting does not compensate you for the risk. And that Singapore presumably has got a better, um, you know, look, if you look at the balance sheets, it looks pretty safe. But again, I've worked in that industry and you don't know what goes on or balance sheet. Yeah. So that's my thinking on counterparty risk. Um, but there's always that portion of your portfolio which you want to trade. You want to take advantage of these opportunities that are out there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, do, you think, do you think we're heading to a world where the model for a bank will be in a 100% reserve ratio? You know, they'll, they'll charge you money for transactions and that's where they'll make their money and, you know, those will be higher than they, than they otherwise would be. You know, well, the banks are going to have to do something because they, right. they you know, it's, it's perverse in that the central banks, in their attempt to prop up the banks, have destroyed the banking model. Banks can't make money in a zero interest rate environment. It's that simple. Mm. Okay, so the, the banks are under massive pressure in this deflationary environment. It's almost one reason that you would actually want to be long banks if we have a return to inflation because they will cream it and they're yeah, not priced for yeah. that right now. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's, that's a potential asymmetric setup right there. Mm. Um, but you've got to be careful as to which banks you're getting into. But the point, <laughs> I guess, is that um, the banks are going to have to come up with ways of staying alive. I'm of the opinion that we're at the end of this credit cycle. It looks to me like March, earlier March this year was the bottom of the cycle. We'll have to see. I'm not prepared to, you know, say that that's the case. And, and quite frankly, anybody that did say that to you is, um, is probably trying to sell you something. Mm. Um, but if I look at LIBOR, um, that's always an indication of stresses in the banking system and it tends to portend um, longer-term rates. There's two things that can move. One is interest rates and the other is a currency. Those are your two exit valves. Um, and the interest rate valve, if you will, is done. It's <laughs> this needs <laughs> to be, be squeezed out of that particular um, lemon. And so I don't... I, I struggle to see an environment where all of the world's sovereign debt and, and, and bond markets can go ever more negative. But I could be wrong. Uh, even if, if that is the case, it's not, a, it's not a trade I'm prepared to take. And it's not a trade I'm prepared to take because you're not compensated for the risk. 
if, if, a, if a bond goes, so let's say the 10-year, what's it at? It's about one and a half. Let's say it goes to one. Whoopee, you make 50 basis points, okay? Now, that doesn't, that doesn't strike me as a great deal. I mean, I've got friends mm. who manage portfolios who, who are long U.S. bonds. Now, if I had to go long a bond, I'd go long U.S. bonds because of the interest rate differential between um, European and Japanese debt. And I think that capital is going to keep shifting towards the U.S., if only just for, for the yield differential. So in that, on, in that scenario, then, yeah, yields can go lower in the U.S. But um, I'm not really compensated for this enormous... That, that's a trade. That's like a shortest-term trade. Yeah. That's not something I would put on and go to sleep for the next five to ten years. That was part two of our three-part series with Chris McIntosh of Capitalist Exploits. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Chris's journey as an investor. If you have any questions you want to put to Chris, you can get in touch with us and we'll put them to him. Just hit us up via Twitter at VesperCap and we'll do another session dedicated to answering them. Now, as previously mentioned, listeners can and should subscribe to Capitalist Exploits, which is Chris's podcast and blog, which can be found at capitalistexploits.at or just search for Capitalist Exploits in your favorite search engine. I recommend Chris's podcast, which is an amazing education in the sorts of things we've been discussing today and his books, which can be downloaded for free from the site. Say hello to him on Twitter also at CapitalistExp. Finally, anything that we've made reference to in this interview should be available in the show notes. But if it's not, just get in touch with us via at VesperCap on Twitter or go to Vespa.Capital and get in touch. We look forward to wrapping up this series with Chris next week where we get into some more detailed discussions and break down Chris's thoughts on investing in today's world. Next week, we'll hear from Chris on what he'd do if I gave him $20 million to allocate over the next few years and a whole bunch more. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast and we look forward to bringing you more actionable habits and strategies you can use to build your wealth over the long term.